Now that's good. The best part of it isn't just the singing or the tune or the harmony. It's the fact that Jesus is coming and it's a glorious day. I hope you have your Bibles with you. If you do, then turn please to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If not, the text is going to appear on the screen. I have a very long text today. Uh, Actually, it's only one verse. When I was in the 8th grade, I was 13 years of age and 6 foot 2. I was the tallest kid not only in my class, I was the third tallest kid in the whole school, which was from grades 12 or senior all the way down to kindergarten. I always wanted to be 6 foot 7. Why that number? I have no idea, but that's what I wanted to be, six foot seven. Boy, was I disappointed. I didn't make it. <laughs> I'm still only six foot two. I didn't grow one itty bitty little bit after eighth grade. Unfortunately, many Christians have stopped growing in their spiritual lives. They may still be growing physically, but when it comes to the spiritual things of their lives, they've stopped growing. Maybe they're satisfied with with what they've achieved. But that's not the way that it's supposed to be. And what concerns Paul and his team as he begins to write this book in 1 Thessalonians is he wants them to continue to grow. He wants them to grow until Jesus comes again. And so what we're going to discover as we go through this book together is that he's going to talk about growth and he's going to talk about the coming of Jesus. Okay, now I know you're going to do the Baptist thing, but I'd like you to talk to me as well. Okay? Do you believe that Jesus is coming again? Do you believe that he's coming soon? Okay, now that one wasn't quite as loud as the first one, but it was loud enough to let me know that most of you at least believe that Jesus Christ is coming again and that he's coming soon. That's what Paul's going to write about. But he's going to give a balance to this subject, somewhat unlike what happens in our world, because oftentimes people who are really taken up with future things In theology, the word is eschatology. Uh, And uh, there are some people who are so taken up with that, they think that everything that we talk about ought to be that. I've been told. Now, you know, Don, you're not a deep preacher because you don't preach all the time about the second coming. Well, I think there are some other things that God wants us to grasp. I think that there are some things that God wants us to know. He does want us to know that he's coming soon. Let me read our text for us, and then we'll pray, and then we'll begin to dig into things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, Lord, this seems like just, well, dear John, or dear Don, or dear Susan, or dear Elizabeth. But it's more than that. 
And in actual fact, we'd best understand this if we are going to ultimately be able to connect with all of the other things that Paul and his team are going to write about in 1 Thessalonians. It's best that we understand this if we are going to make an application from what Paul is saying to them to where we are today. Lord, we don't want it just to be information. We need the information to get the facts straight. But we want it to be something that will feed our souls and help us to live in the way that you want us to live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin. Let's take a first investigation, if you, if you will. In Canada in 1966, they started a television program that was a cross-Canada television program called W5. It was the longest-lasting news program in Canada, and one of the longest-lasting in uh, the entire of North America. It was built on one very simple journalistic approach, the five W's. So we're going to take a few moments to do the five W's this morning on this passage to help us take a good but simple look at this text. We need to ask ourselves whenever we begin to study a book, who wrote the book? Now most of us are acquainted with the Pauline epistles. Some of us can name all 13 of them. And in naming them, we will name 1 Thessalonians as one of those 13. But what we won't sometimes understand is that it isn't only Paul who is credited with writing this book. According to the text of the English Standard Version, which I'm using this morning, it is Paul, Savannah, and Timothy. If you have a New International Version, or if you have most of the other English versions, it will say Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Silas being his Greek name. And that's the easiest way for us to understand that. So from here on, I'll refer to him as Silas. Each of these are part of the church planting team that has gone into Thessalonica. It was on the second missionary journey that Paul and Silas and Timothy are writing this. The second church planting tour. Now, usually when you hear this, and this is not a misnomer, in fact, if you look in the back of your Bible at the maps that are there, you're going to see the missionary journeys of Paul. I don't have a problem with naming them as missionary journeys, but I do have a challenge for us today to understand that Paul specifically did one thing when he went into every single town. He preached good news. He preached the gospel with the goal to planting a church. I'm not saying that that's all that's involved in missionary ministry, but I am saying we need to understand that what is uppermost in Paul's mind is declaring good news with the view to winning people to Jesus, discipling them, and getting them into a local church, not that existed, but that they were planting. Paul is the primary writer. In fact, if you look carefully at this book, you see that the thumbprint of Paul is deep upon what's in this book. But Silas and Timothy are also credited with being part of this. 
Their thoughts, in fact, there are some of the thoughts that clearly have come probably from Silas more than from Paul. Maybe we'll point some of those out to us as we go through this. But the point that I want you to realize is this. Paul is wanting us to understand that the Christian life, that Christian ministry, that Christian service is never done in isolation. It is done as part of a team. And it takes a team to get the job done. I was talking with Becky McIntyre before the service began, the first service began, and we were talking about children's ministry. And I said to her, you know, I appreciate what you do. I, I appreciate that you give up the opportunity to be in the service so that you can do what's being done there. I said, oftentimes when people look at what's going on in the church, they say, well, you know, Dr. So-and-so is the pastor, and that's marvelous. Well, it is. But the measure of that church is not simply that pastor who stands in the pulpit to declare truth from the word of God. That's important. But it's lots of other things. And she reminded me of something immediately. She said, but I don't think it's my measure either. She says, I think it's that host of people that become part of the team. She's right. And that's important for us to grasp at the beginning of this book, that Paul is wanting us to understand that what is happening here is that it's a teamwork. Some of you love sports that are really basically individual sports, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to say anything negative about that. My preference was always to play on teams rather than to do individual stuff. I was better at team stuff than I was at individual stuff. So I get the concept of the fact that I can't do it alone. There are people that have to help me do it and that I have to help. And Paul wants us to see that this morning. So as I look across, each of you who are here today, you may be saying, I'm so unimportant. In the grand scheme of things here at First Baptist Church, I don't really matter. I can't talk like the preacher does. I can't teach like Becky McIntyre teaches. I can't hear like the hearing people hear. I can't walk like people who are not crippled can walk. But the reality is, listen to me, we are all part of a team. And the seemingly little things do matter. They were working on something up in the sound booth between the two services, and Dan Wamsley said to me, Don, can you come up here? Now, you all know that I walk on a cane. I can walk really well on a cane. I don't have much trouble at all. It's up and down stairs where I have the biggest problem. I can get up easier than I can get down. So when I was coming down, I said to Dan, Dan, will you stand at the bottom here? Because there's not a railing on there, so I can't hang on to it. And he says, do you want to grab a hold of me all the way down? I said, no, I just need you at the bottom step. And so he stood there, and I took a hold of his shoulder to take the last step. It seems like the important thing is that Don gets down. No, the important thing is that Dan is willing to serve in that way. It takes teamwork to accomplish what God wants to accomplish at First Baptist Church. It takes multiple people on the staff who are here every day serving in capacities that help us to be able to do the job more effectively. But it takes you being part of the team and me 
letting you be part of the team and acknowledging that we are all part of this team. Okay, so we're talking about who. There are three who's in this passage. The first one is Paul. His name means little. Now, most people infer that that probably means he was a short man, or as we would say today, he was vertically challenged. <laughs> Some of us who are not so vertically challenged could, be, uh, could certainly be motivated by this man. It has, it has been said of Paul that everywhere he went, every town that he arrived in, after he'd been there for a very short period of time, there was either a revival... People got stirred up for God, or there was a riot. People got upset with him, or both. I mean, this dude is really kind of an interesting guy. So let's talk a little bit about where he came from. Because where he came from is significant. We are going to see the, we are going to see the, uh, the footsteps of his background in some of the things that we encounter in this book. He was born as a Jewish baby in the town of Tarshish. Now, you say, where's that? Well, if you look on the maps in the back of your Bible, you'll discover that it's, uh, it's kind of in Asia Minor. But to more specifically tell you where it is, and to me this is very interesting, Paul was born in modern-day Turkey. Today, the gospel is almost non-existent in Turkey, but at one time, the gospel was preached regularly in Turkey, and many of the places that we hear about were in Turkey. We know that his early name was Saul, according to Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 13, but after he had that experience of coming to know Jesus as his Savior, his name was changed. We'll talk about that in a moment. The tribe that he came from was the tribe of Benjamin. Philippians 3 and verse 5 tells us he was trained under Gamaliel. Acts chapter 22 tells us a little bit about this man. He was the leading Pharisee. He was the leading rabbi. It would be like, because their method of education was different than ours, it would be like you enrolling in the University of Illinois and arriving on campus in Champaign and choosing or be chosen to be taught by the number one professor at UI, U of I. Huh. You'd consider that a tremendous privilege. Do you know that whoever that is, and I'm sorry I don't know, I didn't look it up, I should have. It would be interesting to know. But do you know that that professor is probably known, not only here in Illinois, but across America and around the world. That's who Gamaliel was. And Paul was educated to the place where, in our way of understanding it, when he was done with Gamaliel, he, he actually probably had the equivalent in education of a Ph.D. in religion. He knew everything there was to know. He was extremely educated. 
According to Philippians 3 and verse 5, in that education we discover he was also a very conservative individual. Now, I'm not talking about politics, although that was true too. I'm talking about the fact that when it came to interpreting the Old Testament scriptures, he was very strict in the way that he interpreted them. He was very strict in the way that he was going to preach them. But then we come to Acts chapter 9. And Paul was on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus. He was going to Damascus to arrest Christians. He was going to kill Christians. He was going to put Christians in prison. He was going to beat Christians. He was going to persecute Christians. And there he finds himself at noontime on the road to Damascus. And he's on his face in the dust on that road. And he's crying out, Who are you, Lord? And the response he gets from heaven is this. I am, can you say it with me? Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. And the metaphor that he is using is the metaphor of a beast of burden that has been fastened into some kind of wagon to draw the load that is on that wagon and the beast does not want to be harnessed in and is kicking at the things that are on the front of that wagon so as to try and get itself loose. Jesus said to him, Saul, keep kicking if you want to, but it's just going to make it worse. See, what you need to do is you need to pay attention. And right there, Saul... Paul did pay attention, did repent of his sin toward God, did by faith receive Jesus Christ as his Savior, and his life was changed forever. Saul, Paul, led three church, at least three church planting teams, Acts 13, Acts 16, and Acts 19. And as I said earlier, he wrote some 13 books in the New Testament. Now, the second person in this is a guy named Silvanus, or Silas, and it means forest or woods. I don't know. Maybe he was born someplace where there were a lot of trees. What we do know about him in Acts chapter 16 is he's a Roman citizen. That means he's a person who is really relatively important in that world. It was not necessarily typical for Jewish people to have Roman citizenship. We discover in Acts chapter 15 that Silas is a leader in the church in Jerusalem. This is interesting because this doesn't mean he just kind of was part of the congregation. This means that whatever was going on, the direction they were going, the vision that was set, the things that they were seeking to accomplish, Silas was in on it. He was not only in on it in terms of trying to lead that congregation towards fulfilling that vision, he was in on helping to set that vision. He's an important individual. He's a person of authority. And we find out in Acts chapter 15 and verse 32 that he is a prophet. That means he's a declarer of the truth. I can imagine some people getting up on whatever day of the week it was, either Saturday or Sunday, it could have been either or both. And I can imagine, I can imagine 
this couple awakening from their sleep and looking at one another and saying, this is the day that we get to go to be with the Christians, to fellowship with the Christians. Oh, I hope Silas is the one who's going to preach. I just so appreciate his spirit. I just so appreciate the way he declares the truth with authority. I just like the fact that he calls us to act on it. I could go and listen to a preacher like that. I can assure you there have been some preachers I've listened to that I say, oh, just wait until this is over. Now I can just get out of here. You say, that happens to you too? Mm -hmm. But when you have the anointing of the Spirit, when you have the desire to teach the truth, and a prophet always preached and declared God's message, it wasn't Silas's idea, it was God's word. Now, we notice that he was the one sent, one of two that was sent by the church in Jerusalem down to Antioch when they had a discussion about uh, some of the challenges they were facing in the church. So he's obviously somebody they deeply respected. This is the man that Paul chooses to go with him on this second church planting ministry. Paul identifies him as an apostle. Now, we're not going to get hung up at this point in time because there are some of us who think that the only ones who are apostles in the New Testament are the ones that are declared, the twelve, Judas kind of fell out of the way here, and Matthias who was put in his place, and Paul. But Paul calls, uh, sorry, Paul. yes, Paul does call Barnabas, and he also calls Silas an apostle. I'm not going to argue over that. I'm just going to simply say that an apostle had the authority of God. You listen to an apostle because he was speaking for God. Now, the third person in this is the one that I'm really interested in us coming to understand this morning. His name is Timothy, and it means honored by God. We discover that Paul sees him for the first time in a town called Lystra, in Asia Minor, again, in modern Turkey, according to Acts chapter 16 and verse 1. But there are some significant things that we pass over too quickly. Here's the first one. Timothy is born of mixed parentage. We discover that his father is a Greek, that is a Gentile. We discover that his mother is a Jewish believer, a Hebrew Christian That should set off some triggers in your mind. There's something wrong with this picture. For indeed, this young lady would have known, as far back as Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 3 and 4, it declares this specific thing. You shall not intermarry with the heathen, verse 4, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. It had further implications according to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 2 where it says, no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Okay, so here are several things that I want you to notice. By the way, the word that is used to describe Timothy in Hebrew, on one side of it or the other or both sides of it, is the name Mamzer. Now, as far as any person who was a leader in a Jewish context, they would be absolutely pushed back 
from a mamzer. They would have nothing to do with a mamzer. We'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment. So what's the story? I'm not exactly sure. We are told that Timothy's grandmother and Timothy's mother made sure that he understood the truth, that he understood God's work, that he understood what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we discover that he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. We are told that they took responsibility for the instruction of this young man. Papa wasn't in the scene. Why not? Well, clearly one thing we can say, and this is the traditional way we look at it, Papa being a a Gentile didn't care about spiritual things, or at least Christian things. But what is obvious is he is a very passively involved person in Timothy's life. Because when it comes to Paul choosing this third member of his team for church planting, it doesn't sound like he's anywhere in the picture. Were they married and divorced? Were they married and separated? Or is it even possible, now listen, is it even possible that Timothy's father and mother were never married? That would have been quite a typical thing to have happen in in Lystra, not necessarily with a Jewish young maiden. But whatever it is, Timothy in that world was considered a very unacceptable person. So here we have this incredibly educated, conservative Jewish guy who ends up on his face in the dust, trusting Jesus as Savior, collecting together a team to go to be church planters. And when it comes to the choice of this, he chooses a very upstanding man in Silas, but he chooses an outcast in Timothy. And Timothy is going to be, really, the heir apparent to carry on what it is that Paul is seeking to lead in terms of church planting. Why am I making a point of this? Because seated in our seats here today, there are people who are saying, I know that God can choose Brad. I know that God can choose Jeremy. I know that God can choose Chris. I know that God can choose Don. But my past has a bunch of checkered stuff in it, and God can't choose me. But when we come to know Jesus as our Savior, bless God, our past is forgiven. It is gone We need not let it control us anymore. Now, I think Timothy actually continued to have some challenges with his past. I suspect that Timothy had a very poor self-image. Because we discover in Timothy, when Paul writes to him, he says, Timothy, I want you to act with courage. I don't want you to be filled with fear. Is it possible that when he would be out there preaching and doing the things that he did, that somebody would come up and wag their finger at him and say, I know you. I know about you. You're a mamzer. And while he could never detach the title, he certainly could detach the results. 
And so Paul said to him, come on, Timothy, have courage. Stand firm. Don't, uh, don't shrink back from it. Stay right in there. So my word to you this morning is, you may be thinking, oh, but if you knew what I did, I would be so embarrassed. Ah, but you've come to Jesus. And he has cleansed you from your sin. He has set you free. <laughs> You're ready to be part of the team. Suppose Paul's here and he's saying, I'm going on my gazillionth church planting uh, team and Timothy's still with me and Silas. Well, Silas got too long in the tooth, so he had to kind of step back from I need somebody else on my team and I want you. Oh, but Paul, this is why. Yeah, I know all about this kind of stuff. You see, I chose Timothy even though everybody would think that I never would because he proved that his life was in Christ. He stepped up. And he said, you need to know I stepped up too. Because you see, I was a murderer. God chooses those of us who have been very broken to do some of the things that God wants done in the church and beyond the church, in the community. You, if you are a follower of Jesus, have the qualifications, all you've got to do is get busy with the availability. Don't step back. Don't hide. Have courage. Have boldness. Step forward and see what God is going to do. So those are the three gentlemen. What were they writing about? The theme of this book, and I'm quoting Greg Laurie, but this is really good. You may want to write it down. I'll say it twice for you. The theme is, focus on living a godly and holy life as you await the return of Jesus Christ. Focus on living a godly and holy life as you await the return of Jesus Christ. Do you believe Jesus is coming again? Do you believe he's coming soon? Then it's very important that we live for God. There were some who wanted to sit out there and just stargaze. We got people like that today too. Oh, Don, you didn't preach on the second coming today, so you you missed the whole point. No, I didn't miss the whole point. The whole point's found bound in this. And it is about Jesus. And one very important aspect of that is that Jesus is coming. Now, the wonderful thing is, as we go through these five chapters, we're going to hit it five different times. Now, it's going to be startling for some of you because what it teaches is different than what you may think it teaches. Not radically. But you see, we're so into setting times, and we're so into setting seasons, and we're so into saying it's this and it's that and something else, that we miss the point that Paul is trying to make, that Jesus is coming. So live for the Lord Jesus. When was this book written? It was written sometime between 50 and 53, AD 50 and 53, likely in AD 51. So roughly 25 years after Jesus has ascended back to heaven. A point you should know. This book is the first book in the New Testament to be penned. You say, oh, I thought Matthew was. No. Well, if it wasn't Matthew, wasn't it Mark? No. Those came later on. 
They are positioned where they are to fill in the story for us the way that it needs to be so that we understand both the chronology of what's going on and the importance of the things. But this is the first book written. Where was the book written from? It was written by Paul uh, and Silas and Timothy in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. It suggests from the city of Corinth. Why was the book written? Two reasons. Because Paul and Silas had left abruptly, according to Acts chapter 17. You remember that there was a riot after they had preached, and, and there, was a, there was an actual legal writ that was taken out, a warrant taken out that said they were, they were deported from the city. They were not permitted in the city, and so they had to leave. Much sooner than they wanted, which brings us to the second reason. See, Paul was concerned for them because they were a young church, and he wanted to write to them to encourage them. Now, when Paul writes to this church, he's writing to a church that is located in the Balkan Mountains in the region of Greece. It was founded by a guy named Cassandra in 315 B.C., and it was named Thessaloniki after the half-sister of Alexander the Great. It was made up primarily of Greeks and Romans, and then there was, a, there was a small group of Hellenistic Jews. It was a city of about 200,000. Stretch it or pull it in a little, roughly the size of, uh, of Peoria. Okay, so that's the size of this city. Now Paul's uh, planting team came there on their second missionary journey, and for three weekends, according to Acts 17, They preached in the synagogue. Why the synagogue? Because that's where the people would gather. That's where religious things would be done. That's where teaching would go on. And so they gathered there and they preached. And I want you to notice that in verse number 4 of Acts 17, it says that there were many people who believed. One of the reasons there's not so much of people believing in their own day We say it's because we're in the last days. Yes, we are. Indeed, we are. Well, and and the Bible tells us it's going to get harder and harder. Uh, Be careful. We oftentimes take scriptures to force them to mean what we want them to, to give ourselves excuses not to do. Well, you see, there isn't much sense in talking to people about Jesus because they're not going to believe anyway. It's hard. Well, it is difficult to get people to listen, but the reality is, It's impossible to get them to listen if we don't speak up. (laughs) So they spoke up, and we are told that many people believed. Both Jews and Greeks and many prominent women believed. Of course, the Jews are one of the groups that I identified. And the Greeks, of course, are the Gentiles, Romans and, and Greeks. And many prominent women. But we are told that there are some who were jealous. Why? Because of the results. Because people were getting saved. You say, they shouldn't do that. I agree they shouldn't. But can I bring us up into the present? We look around us and we say, well, we could have a lot more people here in our church building. Now, someplace else not far from here, there is a church that didn't exist five years ago and they're running 3,000 people. And we're jealous. Oh, we won't admit it, but we're jealous. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, I will rejoice even when good news is preached in contention. In other words, 
when there is jealousy coming the other direction. So they get very upset, and of course they expel Paul and Silas. So Paul is focusing, and this team are focusing, on these young believers who are inexperienced, and he says in the text, I want you to notice with me, you say, I didn't realize all this was in this text. Well, some of it is able to be drawn from other things, but what I'm going to do right now, this is all in the text, right in the text. You say, I never saw it before. Okay, that's fine. Let's look at it. First thing that he says is this. These young and inexperienced people in this church needed to be, uh, needed to be reminded that they belonged to God. It says, in God. The little word in is a very small Greek word, but it's very significant. Because it suggests location, it suggests condition, it suggests state, and it suggests a close relationship. Where am I as a believer? Where are you as a believer? And need to be reminded, we are in God. Do you remember in John chapter 10, it talks about the fact that uh, we are in the palm of the Father. And we are in the palm of Jesus Christ. Most of us don't realize it doesn't just mean we've been set there to kind of tootle around any old place we please to run out of his hand or to have somebody come and snatch us out. In fact, we are told that no one can snatch us out of the hand of the Father. Good reason why. Because the word that is used there means we are engraved in the palm of the Father. Hmm. And then the Son is also involved in holding us. That's the first thing that this text actually says. The second thing that it actually says is this. Our condition in being there is not a a position of being, you know, all flaky and, and, and whatnot. It means that we are drawing our strength from God to live. Our state is that we are well. It is well with our soul. And our relationship is a close relationship. It would be like me calling up Jeremy and saying, Jeremy, I want you to get in your car and I want you to come up here to Racine and he's going to come into my house. And my neighbors are going to look and say, who's that fine young man that just went into Don's house? And they're going to see that he stays in my house for a while and they say, you know, it appears they have a close relationship. Boy, that... That's something that's good. That's what we have in God. Now notice the second thing. This relationship is not only with God, but also with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is in the text. Here we go. The word Lord is used there. It means master. It means supreme in authority. It means sovereign. So my relationship is with the sovereign. Now, we live in the United States of America. If you were a British citizen, don't be, um, you would say, our sovereign is Elizabeth II. You say, well, we got away from all of that. But the way our country is set up, no person is sovereign, but we have respect for the position which becomes sovereign to us. Okay, that's what Jesus Christ is in our lives. But he's more than that. 
as Jesus. It means Savior. The name means Jehovah saves. It speaks of his humanity and what he did in his humanity, dying in our place on the cross so that we become his child. And the third is a title, Christ, which means the anointed one or the Messiah. So what happens is we are in God. We are in Jesus Christ. And he is my sovereign savior the Messiah. Paul says, that's why I want you to be strong, because that's where your strength comes from. This morning, that's where your strength comes from. You say, I'm so weak as a Christian. Hey, you're in God and in Jesus Christ. And this is what it describes for us. So he uses two words quickly to describe his greeting to them. The first one is grace. The second one is peace. And it's important for us to understand that this just isn't the typical Greek greeting or the typical Hebrew greeting, which it is, grace being the Greek one and peace being the Hebrew one. But more specifically, he is trying to show us what this means for us, being in God, being in Christ. Grace is unmerited favor, something I do not deserve. It is used 13 times in this book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul uses it 88 times in his 13 books. So let's take a moment and find out what happens with grace. We are justified by grace. We are given an abundance of grace by God. We are under grace, not law. We are elected by grace. We are called by God's grace. We are partakers of grace. We are saved by grace. And we are to be strong in grace. Because I'm in God. Because I'm in Jesus Christ. Grace gives me all of these things. You ought to be saying amen. So peace. Again, I told you it's the usual Jewish greeting. uh, Translated in Hebrew as shalom. It does not mean Peace in the absence of war, rather it means calmness in the midst of adversity. It is spiritual contentedness and well-being. So here's what we see about peace. Peace comes to those who do good. Peace fills the minds of those controlled by the Holy Spirit. Peace is what God has called us to in life. Peace is the third of the nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Peace is to rule in our hearts. Again, we've got a lot. It's been given to us. It's the pathway, the bridge, the the motivation for walking with God as we wait for Jesus to come. Now I conclude this morning and you say, I hope that every sermon in this series isn't like this one. And I promise you they won't be. But this becomes foundational to what we're going to say. You understand this, you accept this, and everything else is going to get far, far more exciting. And every time we talk about the soon coming of Jesus Christ, it is going to cause your heart to become more excited at the prospect of Jesus coming and hopefully become more of a motivation for you to walk with God, to grow spiritually to the end. God our Father... Thank you for what we have learned this morning. Know that it is a lot of facts, but I pray that you'll help us to go beyond facts to application.
to realize these are the things that you've done for us, just like Paul said you were doing for the Thessalonian believers. Would you watch over these dear folk as they go their way to the activities of this day and the rest of this week? And if you tarry, when we come back next week, may we come back with an excited heart to see how Paul describes for these people who they were and what they could have because of who they were. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, quickly, I would encourage you to read through First Thessalonians. It's only five chapters, and it won't take you very long to read them through. Most of them are not more than 12 or 13 verses long. You will, you will enjoy being able to read it in one sitting if you do that, because then it'll give you a good view of what we're going to talk about. You're great people. Not because of who you are, but who God has made you to be. And you can have an incredible impact. And I can say to you that if you will simply grow close to God, he will give you that incredible impact. What a wonderful opportunity. So what I'm going to say to you is usually what I say to you when we conclude. Stand firm. If you want to come and speak to me, please, by all means, come and see me up here. A couple things I want to say about that. I know that I'm big and tall and have a big personality. I know that I have piercing eyes. I know all of that. So that's nothing new. You don't have to be afraid of any of that. And the reason why I say that is because I like people. And you know, it gets very lonely standing up here on Sunday morning when everybody leaves and nobody comes and talks to me. Maybe I'm getting a bad self-image, I don't know. Now, if you do have something that you do need to say to me, by all means, please come and speak to me. I'll be happy to talk with you about whatever it is that's on your heart and mind. Go out and make a difference for God this week. God bless you.